0: Section 34 of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men and Things by William Hazlitt Section 34 On a Portrait of an English Lady by Van Dyck Part 2 Titian, in his portraits, appears to have understood the principle of historical design better than anybody every part tells and has a bearing on the whole there is no one who has such simplicity and repose no violence no affectation no attempt at forcing an effect insomuch that by the uninitiated He is often condemned as unmeaning and insipid. A turn of the eye, a compression of the lip, decides the point. He just draws the face out of its most ordinary state, and gives it the direction he would have it take, but then every part takes the same direction, and the effect of this united impression, which is absolutely momentary and all but habitual, is wonderful it is that which makes his portraits the most natural and the most striking in the world it may be compared to the effect of a number of small lodestones that by acting together lift the greatest weights titian seized upon the lines of character in the most original and connected point of view Thus, in his celebrated portrait of Ippolito de' Medici, there is a keen, sharpened expression that strikes you, like a blow from the spear that he holds in his hand. The look goes through you, yet it has no frown, no startling gesticulation, no affected penetration. It is quiet, simple. But it almost withers you. The whole face, and each separate feature, is cast in the same acute or wedge like form. The forehead is high and narrow, the eyebrows raised and coming to a point in the middle, the nose straight and peaked, the mouth contracted and drawn up at the corners, the chin acute and the two sides of the face slanting to a point the number of acute angles which the lines of the face form are in fact a net entangling the attention and subduing the will the effect is felt at once though it asks time and consideration to understand the cause it is a face which you would beware of rousing into anger or hostility as you would beware of setting in motion some complicated and dangerous machinery the possessor of it you may be sure is no trifler such indeed was the character of the man this is to paint true portrait and true history so if our artist painted a mild and thoughtful expression all the lines of the countenance were softened and relaxed if the mouth was going to speak the whole face was going to speak it was the same in colour the gradations are infinite and yet so blended as to be imperceptible no two tints are the same though they produce the greatest harmony and simplicity of tone, like flesh itself. If, said a person, pointing to the shaded side of a portrait of Titian, you could turn this round to the light, you would find it would be of the same colour as the other side. In short, there is manifest in his portraits a greater tenaciousness and identity of impression than in those of any painter form color feeling character seemed to adhere to his eye and to become part of himself and his pictures on this account leave stings in the minds of the spectators there is i grant the same personal appeal the same point-blank look in some of raphael's portraits see those of a princess of aragon and of count castiglione numbers eleven fifty and eleven fifty one as in titian but they want the texture of the skin and the minute individual details to stamp them with the same reality and again as to the uniformity of outline in the features this principle has been acted upon and carried to excess by nella and other artists the eyes the eyebrows the nose the mouth the chin are rounded off as if they were turned in a lathe or as a peruke maker arranges the curls of a wig In them it is vile and mechanical, without any reference to truth of character or nature, and instead of being pregnant with meaning and originality of expression, produces only insipidity and monotony. Perhaps what is offered above as a key to the peculiar expression of Titian's heads may also serve to explain the difference between painting and copying a portrait as the perfection of his faces consists in the entire unity and coincidence of all the parts so the difficulty of ordinary portrait painting is to bring them to bear at all or to piece one feature or one day's labour on to another in copying this difficulty does not occur at all the human face is not one thing as the vulgar suppose nor does it remain always the same it has infinite varieties which the artist is obliged to notice and to reconcile or he will make strange work not only the light and shade upon it do not continue for two minutes the same, the position of the head constantly varies, or if you are strict with a sitter, he grows sullen and stupid. Each feature is in motion every moment, even while the artist is working at it, and in the course of a day, the whole expression of the countenance undergoes a change, so that the expression which you gave to the forehead or eyes yesterday is totally incompatible with that which you have to give to the mouth today. You can only bring it back again, to the same point, or give it a consistent construction by an effort of imagination or a strong feeling of character, and you must connect the features together less by the eye than by the mind. The mere setting down what you see in this medley of successive, teasing, contradictory impressions would never do. Either you must continually efface what you have done the instant before, or, if you retain it, You will produce a piece of patchwork worse than any caricature there must be a comprehension of the whole and in truth a moral sense as well as a literal one to unravel the confusion and guide you through the labyrinth of shifting muscles and features you must feel what this means and dive into the hidden soul In order to know whether that is as it ought to be, for you cannot be sure that it remains as it was. Portrait painting is then painting from the recollection and from a conception of character, with the object before us to assist the memory and understanding. In copying, on the contrary, one part does not run away and leave you in the lurch while you are intent upon another you have only to attend to what is before you and finish it carefully a bit at a time and you are sure that the whole will come right one might parcel it out into squares as in engraving and copy one at a time without seeing or thinking of the rest I do not say that a conception of the whole and a feeling of the art will not abridge the labour of copying or produce a truer likeness, but it is the changeableness or identity of the object that chiefly constitutes the difficulty or facility of imitating it, and in the latter case reduces it nearly to a mechanical operation it is the same in the imitation of still life where real objects have not a principle of motion in them it is as easy to produce a facsimile of a table or a chair as to copy a picture because these things do not stir from their places any more than the features of a portrait stir from theirs You may therefore bestow any given degree of minute and continued attention on finishing any given part, without being afraid that when finished it will not correspond with the rest. Nay, it requires more talent to copy a fine portrait than to paint an original picture of a table or a chair, for the picture has a soul in it and the table has not it has been made an objection and i think a just one against the extreme high finishing of the drapery and backgrounds in portraits to which some schools particularly the french are addicted that it gives an unfinished look to the face the most important part of the picture a lady or a gentleman, cannot sit quite so long, or so still, as a lay figure, and if you finish up each part, according to the length of time it will remain in one position, the face will seem to have been painted for the sake of the drapery, not the drapery, to set off the face. There is an obvious limit to everything, if we attend to common sense and feeling if a carpet or a curtain will admit of being finished more than the living face we finish them less because they excite less interest and we are less willing to throw away our time and pains upon them this is the unavoidable result in a natural and well-regulated style of art but what is to be said of a school where no interest is felt in anything where nothing is known of any object but that it is there and where superficial and petty details which the eye can explore and the hand execute with persevering and systematic indifference constitute the soul of art the expression is the great difficulty in history or portrait painting and yet it is the great clue to both it renders forms doubly impressive from the interest and signification attached to them and at the same time renders the imitation of them critically nice by making any departure from the line of truth doubly sensible mr coleridge used to say That what gave the romantic and mysterious interest to Salvatore's landscapes was their containing some implicit analogy to human or other living forms. His rocks had a latent resemblance to the outline of a human face. His trees had the distorted, jagged shape of a satyr's horns and grotesque features. I do not think this is the case but it may serve to supply us with an illustration of the present question suppose a given outline to represent a human face but to be so disguised by circumstances and little interruptions as to be mistaken for a projecting fragment of a rock in a natural scenery as long as we conceive of this outline merely as a representation of a rock or other inanimate substance any copy of it however rude will seem the same and as good as the original now let the disguise be removed and the general resemblance to a human face pointed out and what before seemed perfect will be found to be deficient in the most essential features let it be further understood to be a profile of a particular face that we know and all likeness will vanish from the want of the individual expression which can only be given by being felt that is the imitation of external and visible form is only correct or nearly perfect when the information of the eye and the direction of the hand are aided and confirmed by the previous knowledge and actual feeling of character in the object represented the more there is of character and feeling in any object and the greater sympathy there is with it in the mind of the artist the closer will be the affinity between the imitation and the thing imitated, as the more there is of character and expression in the object, without a proportionable sympathy with it in the imitator, the more obvious will this defect and the imperfection of the copy become. That is, expression is the great test and measure of a genius for painting and the fine arts, the mere imitation of still life, however perfect, can never furnish proofs of the highest skill or talent. For there is an inner sense, a deeper intuition into nature, that is never unfolded by merely mechanical objects, and which, if it were called out by a new soul being suddenly infused into an inanimate substance would make the former unconscious representation appear crude and vapid the eye is sharpened and the hand made more delicate in its tact while by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy we see into the life of things we not only see but feel expression by the help of the finest of all our senses the sense of pleasure and pain he then is the greatest painter who can put the greatest quantity of expression into his works for this is the nicest and most subtle object of imitation it is that in which any defect is soonest visible, which must be able to stand the severest scrutiny, and where the power of avoiding errors, extravagance or tameness, can only be supplied by the fund of moral feeling, the strength or delicacy of the artist's sympathy with the ideal object of his imitation. To see or imitate any given sensible object is one thing, the effect of attention and practice. But to give expression to a face is to collect its meaning from a thousand other sources, is to bring into play the observation and feeling of one's whole life, or an infinity of knowledge bearing upon a single object in different degrees and manners and implying a loftiness and refinement of character proportioned to the loftiness and refinement of expression delineated expression is of all things the least to be mistaken and the most evanescent in its manifestations pope's lines on the character of women may be addressed to the painter who undertakes to embody it come then the colors and the ground prepare dip in the rainbow trick it off in air choose a firm cloud before it falls and in it catch ere it change the cynthia of the minute it is a maxim among painters that no one can paint more than his own character or more than he himself understands or can enter into nay even in copying a head we have some difficulty in making the features unlike our own a person with a low forehead or a short chin puts a constraint on himself in painting a high forehead or a long chin. So much has sympathy to do with what is supposed to be a mere act of servile imitation. To pursue this argument one step further. People sometimes wonder what difficulty there can be in painting, and ask what you have to do, but to set down what you see. This is true, but the difficulty is to see what is before you, this is at least as difficult as to learn any trade or language we imagine that we see the whole of nature because we are aware of no more than we see of it we also suppose that any given object a head a hand is one thing because we see it at once and call it by one name But how little we see or know, even of the most familiar face, beyond a vague abstraction, will be evident to every one who tries to recollect distinctly all its component parts, or to draw the most rude outline of it for the first time, or who considers the variety of surface, the numberless lights and shades, the tints of the skin, Every particle and pore of which varies, the forms and markings of the features, the combined expression, and all these caught, as far as common use is concerned, by a random glance and communicated by a passing word. A student, when he first copies a head, soon comes to a stand or is at a loss to proceed from seeing nothing more in the face than there is in his copy after a year or two's practice he never knows when to have done and the longer he has been occupied in copying a face or any particular feature sees more and more in it that he has left undone and can never hope to do there have been only four or five painters who could ever produce a copy of the human countenance really fit to be seen and even of these few none was ever perfect except in giving some single quality or partial aspect of nature which happened to fall in with his own particular studies and the bias of his genius as raphael the drawing rembrandt the light and shade van dyck ease and delicacy of appearance etc titian gave more than any one else and yet he had his defects after this shall we say that any the commonest and most uninstructed spectator sees the whole of nature at a single glance and would be able to stamp a perfect representation of it on the canvas if he could embody the image in his mind's eye i have in this essay mentioned one or two of the portraits in the louvre that i like best the two landscapes which i should most covet are the one with the rainbow by rubens and the adam and eve in paradise by Poussin. In the first, shepherds are reposing with their flocks. Under the shelter of a breezy grove, the distances are of air, and the whole landscape seems just washed with the shower that has passed off. The Adam and Eve by Poussin is the full growth and luxuriant expansion of the principle of vegetation. IT IS THE FIRST LOVELY DAWN OF CREATION, WHEN NATURE PLAYED HER VIRGIN FANCIES WILD, WHEN ALL WAS SWEETNESS AND FRESHNESS AND THE HEAVENS DROPPED FATNESS. IT IS THE VERY IDEAL OF LANDSCAPE PAINTING, AND OF THE SCENE IT IS INTENDED TO REPRESENT. IT THROWS US BACK TO THE FIRST AGES OF THE WORLD and to the only period of perfect human bliss, which is, however, on the point of being soon disturbed. I should be contented with these four or five pictures. The Lady by Van Dyck, the Titian, the Presentation in the Temple, the Rubens, and the Poussin, or even with faithful copies of them, added to the two which I have of a young Neapolitan nobleman and of the Ippolito de' Medici, and which, when I look at them, recall other times, and the feelings with which they were done. It is now twenty years since I made those copies, and I hope to keep them while I live. It seems to me no longer ago than yesterday. Should the next twenty years pass as swiftly, forty years will have glided by me like a dream. By this kind of speculation, I can look down as from a slippery height on the beginning and the end of life beneath my feet, and the thought makes me dizzy. My taste in pictures is, I believe, very different from that of rich and princely collectors i would not give tuppence for the whole gallery at fontill i should like to have a few pictures hung round the room that speak to me with well-known looks that touch some string of memory not a number of varnished smooth glittering gewgaws. the taste of the great in pictures is singular but not unaccountable the king is said to prefer the dutch to the italian school of painting and if you hint your surprise at this you are looked upon as a very gothic and outre sort of person you are told however by way of consolation to be sure there is lord Carlyle likes an italian picture mr holwell carr likes an italian picture the marquis of stafford is fond of an italian picture sir george beaumont likes an italian picture these notwithstanding are regarded as quaint and daring exceptions to the established rule and their preference is a species of les majestes in the fine arts as great an eccentricity and want of fashionable etiquette as if any gentleman or nobleman still preferred old claret to new when the king is known to have changed his mind on this subject or was guilty of the offence of dipping his forefinger and thumb in the middle of a snuff-box instead of gradually approximating the contents to the edge of the box according to the most approved models one would imagine that the great and exalted in station would like lofty subjects in works of art whereas they seem to have an almost exclusive predilection for the mean and mechanical one would think those whose word was law would be pleased with the great and striking effects of the pencil on the contrary they admire nothing but the little and elaborate they have a fondness for cabinet and furniture pictures and a proportional antipathy to works of genius even art with them must be servile to be tolerated perhaps the seeming contradiction may be explained thus such persons are raised so high above the rest of the species THAT THE MORE VIOLENT AND AGITATING PURSUITS OF MANKIND APPEAR TO THEM LIKE THE TURMOIL OF ANTS ON A molehill. NOTHING INTERESTS THEM BUT THEIR OWN PRIDE AND SELF-IMPORTANCE. OUR PASSIONS ARE TO THEM AN IMPERTINENCE, AN EXPRESSION OF HIGH SENTIMENT THEY RATHER SHRINK FROM AS A LUDICROUS AND UPSTART ASSUMPTION OF EQUALITY. They therefore like what glitters to the eye, what is smooth to the touch, but they shun by an instinct of sovereign taste whatever has a soul in it, or implies a reciprocity of feeling. The gods of the earth can have no interest in anything human. They are cut off from all sympathy with the bosoms and business of men instead of requiring to be wound up beyond their habitual feeling of stately dignity they wish to have the springs of overstrained pretension let down to be relaxed with trifles light as air to be amused with the familiar and frivolous and to have the world appear a scene of still life except as they disturb it the little in thought and internal sentiment is a natural relief and set-off to the oppressive sense of external magnificence hence kings babble and repeat they know not what a childish dotage often accompanies the consciousness of absolute power repose is somewhere necessary and the soul sleeps while the senses gloat around besides The mechanical and high finished style of art may be considered as something done to order it is a task to be executed more or less perfectly according to the price given and the industry of the artist we stand by as it were to see the work done insist upon a greater degree of neatness and accuracy and exercise a sort of petty jealous jurisdiction over each particular we are judges of the minuteness of the details and though ever so nicely executed as they give us no ideas beyond what we had before we do not feel humbled in the comparison the artisan scarcely rises into the artist and the name of genius is degraded rather than exalted in his person the performance is so far ours that we have paid for it and the highest price is all that is necessary to produce the highest finishing but it is not so in works of genius and imagination their price is above rubies the inspiration of muse comes not with the fiat of a monarch With the donation of a patron and therefore the great turn with disgust or effeminate indifference from the mighty masters of the italian school because such works baffle and confound their self-love and make them feel that there is something in the mind of man which they can neither give nor take away Quam nihil ad tuum, Papiniane ingenium. End of section thirty four.